0: Welcome to Exit Strategy. I'm Stephanie Gary, Executive Vice President of Communal Partnerships at Plaza Jewish Community Chapel in New York City, and the host of our new and growing podcast. Exit Strategy is a monthly podcast sponsored by the Chapel, and we will explore all topics related to end-of-life issues from the religious, cultural, and societal perspectives. We're happy you're here. And we hope you share the podcast with all. I am genuinely honored to welcome to Exit Strategy Rabbi David Wolpe, the Max Webb Senior Rabbi at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, which is one of the most prominent synagogues in the country. And I just have to say a couple of things about Rabbi Wolpe before we start our conversation, because I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you are the author of numerous books, including one of my favorites, which is the best-selling Making Loss Matter. And you were named one of the most influential rabbis in America by Newsweek and one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. Needless to say, I am so thrilled that you are on Exit Strategy. So Hello, hello, Rabbi David (laughs) Wolfe.
1: Great to see you again, and thank you.
0: I'm so happy that you're here, and thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I got you. It's such a great time. You have just announced your retirement after 25 years on the pulpit. How are
1: you? It sounds unkind to say (laughs) I'm relieved, but (laughs) I would say I have been treasured every moment. Yeah. I don't regret a second of it. I have one more year to go.
0: Right. But there are
1: other things I would like to do, and there's a tremendous amount of incoming when you're a pulpit rabbi. I know. To wake up in the morning and not have a really full inbox of things that really require a response, right. I think will be, will be a relief.
0: <laughs> I know. But wait, in, in 2023, you are then headed to the Harvard Divinity School, where I you'll am. be a visiting scholar, and that's pretty wonderful. I'm sure you're really looking forward to that next step.
1: I am for lots of reasons. Both my parents were from Boston. I used to go there as a kid to visit my grandparents. I have relatives there and friends there. I've lived for a long time in California, and to be back on the East Coast for a while, I think will be wonderful.
0: Well, we're happy that you're coming back our way because it's nice to have you in the neighborhood. I just want to refresh your memory. I'm sure you remember, but in 2010, You were a keynote speaker for PLAZA at a conference that we held at UJA Federation. It was called The Final Chapter, and of life Decisions, How Families Navigate Life's Toughest Choices, and that totally speaks to the topic that you and I are chatting about today, which is the rabbi as the caretaker. And for 25 years, you truly have exemplified that. Right. I'm curious to know, over these past two and a half decades, have you seen a change in people's approach to grief and loss? Are they more open to embracing it, growing from it, talking about it? What's your
1: perspective on that? I think that the kind of work that Plaza has done has really had an impact on people because you see now that even though people are much more open to general topics of gender, sexuality, race, all these things, it's still the opening of death is much harder. Yeah. And so the work has been slower, but I think it's been pretty steady. People are no longer new to end-of-life decisions. Hospice Mm -hmm. is no longer an unusual enterprise for people. Right. The question of do you prolong this life until the last possible moment, no matter its quality, no matter its suffering, is a much more living question than I think it was even 10 years ago.
0: I think you're right, and I'm pleased to say, and I thank you for the acknowledgement that Plaza has done a lot in the community, and and we have certainly seen a change here in New York for sure. You know, it's interesting when I think about these 25 years for you, in addition to everything else, you've really covered tremendous cataclysmic events in society. When you think about 9-11 and and the pandemic, just for instance. So what sort of challenges have those moments created for you as you deal
1: individually
0: with congregants and, of course, more broadly with the Jewish community?
1: This is going to sound very strange. (laughs) One of the advantages I had as a rabbi is in the last 20 years, I've gone through a brain tumor, and lymphoma. Yeah. And the reason I say it's an advantage as a rabbi, it may not be great as a person, but as a rabbi, it's an advantage because when you walk into a hospital room and the patient knows you've been there, it's an entirely different exchange from somebody who thinks you're very nice, but you don't actually know what it is to be sick. Yes. Because sometimes I think there are two tribes in the world, the sick and the well. And when you're sick, it's really hard to imagine wellness again, which is why when you're well, you feel so grateful for a while and then it fades. The first answer is the challenge to me has become less in the sense that now I understand it in a way that when I first took the pulpit, I did not understand it. Right. The challenge of being a rabbi is, especially at the beginning of your career, you face all these life situations that that are alien to you. I mean, I don't Mm -hmm. know what it is to be a a 90 year old woman who's facing the end or to be a Holocaust survivor who's facing the end. You have to, on the one hand, be as empathetic as possible while at the same time knowing that you can't entirely empathize. You have to be both humble and knowing simultaneously. And if you go too far in either direction, then you've done it wrong.
0: I really appreciate you talking about your own personal illness and journey. When that diagnosis happened, was that a moment where you really addressed end of life, or did you switch into a gear where, nope, I've just got to get better?
1: When the first diagnosis happened, I didn't do anything because I had a grand mal seizure. That's how they found out mm. that I had a brain tumor. But both times when they said, you have a tumor, although I was still a little bit more out of it than the second time when I heard I had lymphoma, yeah, both times I thought, am I going to die? Mm. And my thought for Am I going to die? both times was what I think a lot of people I had a young child. I knew too many kids who grew up without parents. I didn't want that to be her fate, obviously. Right. That's the scariest part. It was less facing my own mortality than worrying about what it would mean for her for the rest of her life. My father's father died when my father was 11, and it was the most impactful thing that happened in his whole life and i desperately didn't want that for my child so i have now sat with parents who are dying with young children and the grief of that reality is overwhelming and we know and you just said it that
0: when somebody dies it totally can define our lives it it is probably the most impactful moment I would venture to say then that that illness really informed your rabbinate. It allowed you to find a balance in your life, which I think is probably the biggest right. challenge for a pulpit clergy, yes. is to find that balance, and you were able to do that, which is wonderful.
1: Again, one of the blessings of surviving an illness yeah. is that it does remind you that actually... Mr. So and so complaining about his parking space is not as cataclysmic (laughs) as you probably thought before you thought, oh my God, I might die of this. Yeah. So it does help you put things into perspective while still taking the everydayness of life seriously because you can't ignore the realities of everyday.
0: Working in a funeral chapel, I hear clergy all day long. And I think to myself, okay, they've got a funeral this morning, they're doing a wedding this afternoon. Tell me for you, what is that inner transition like? How do you shift your gears in the course of a day and remain authentic in the moment? I think that's probably
1: one of the biggest challenges, no? It is a huge challenge for most clergy. And here I'm going to be very stereotypical. Okay. I think it is a bigger challenge for most female clergy than it is for most male clergy. And -hmm. the reason I say that is because in my experience, men compartmentalize better. Mm -hmm. Women are more holistic. And therefore, they feel their feelings even when their feelings are inconvenient. (laughs) And men say, this feeling is not convenient right now. I'm going to put it aside and maybe I'll feel it later. I very much, in my own experience, I inhabit the moment. So when I'm at a wedding, I'm really at the wedding. But the moment it's over for me, it's over. Mm -hmm. I don't stay up at night, except in the very rare instances where it's funerals for people. And this is why funerals get harder. You get older and you know people better. Now I'm burying people I really know and really cared about and really, in some cases, loved. And when I first came here, I was burying strangers. Right. So then the challenge was, how do you capture their life? Now the challenge is, how do you make it not about yourself when you feel things too? It's interesting you say that because uh, very often
0: I've received the question, how can you work in a funeral chapel? I mean, aren't you depressed? And of right. course, as you well know, it's, uh, it's a real gift to be of service to people in these moments. And yet, to your point... I've been here for 20 years at Plaza and I know more and more people that we're bearing and it it becomes more personal for sure. And also
1: two groups of people that make a much greater difference than most people think are one, nurses, and everyone knows that who's ever been sick, that it's actually the doctors are great. It's the nurses who make your experience if you're really sick, horrible or not horrible. Correct. and, And the other are people who work in funeral homes. If you have somebody who's cold and distant and so on, at the most vulnerable time, literally of your life, it's awful. And if you have someone who's sympathetic and warm and understanding, the difference is phenomenal.
0: Yes. I talk about our funeral directors who truly are guides for families. Yes. While our number one goal is to show respect for the deceased, our directors really guide families, which, as you said, can either be a really peaceful, caring experience, or it can go the other direction. I've noticed in New York that over these past 20 years, I see that, if you will, our sanctuaries are opening their doors to end-of-life conversation. Would you say in your 25 years, you've seen that as well in terms of
1: people really embracing end-of-life conversation? This has happened for a couple of reasons. People are embracing end-of-life conversations, first of all, because hospitals are starting to admit to them, look, we could do this, we could do that. They give families now a choice, whereas before they didn't give them a choice. Mm -hmm. We all know now doctors sometimes took the question into their own hands and never discussed it with the family because they didn't feel like they could. And now they'll say, look, we can keep doing this, but he'll never get better. You might think that if that ever happened to me or to someone I love I absolutely would make the decision and maybe you would but it's still it's still a very difficult conversation but increasingly we're having it first of all because we're given the choice and second because there is a a, a deinstitutionalization of death mm-hmm. everybody used to die hidden away in hospitals where people wouldn't see and people wouldn't know but now I think it, it sort of takes some of the mysterious horror out of it when someone is home and in bed and you see, you know, the the other day someone posted Dylan Thomas's poem, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light, on Twitter. And I wrote, I said, I always thought this was a young man's poem because in older people, not raging, but gently accepting the dying of the light can be a beautiful thing. Yes. I've seen people lead very lovely deaths, you know? I remember there was a doctor who, in my congregation, probably in his early 90s, I went to visit him in the hospital and he said, Rabbi Wolpe, I just want you to know what a joy it has been um, to be close to you. I won't be seeing you again.
0: Hmm. And the next
1: day he was gone. Wow. And it was stunning to me. There was something very beautiful about it. He didn't say, he was like, I'm ready. I'm done. Goodbye. Right. And that was it. So I think that that's a good thing. I do too. As we
0: talk about some who say, you know, there is such a thing as a beautiful death uh, Mm -hmm. after a long life surrounded by family and love. Because guess what? We all know that we're going to die. So if it can be in a beautiful, peaceful way, that's pretty special. As you transition into this emeritus position over the next year and you assume this fellowship, this is the closing of a life chapter for you. And I'm curious to know what your reflections are on that. I think it's kind of like a, a loss.
1: Yes, it's actually a beautiful thing to talk about in the context of this conversation because although you're not using the word because you're being too nice to do it <laughs> okay. there are little deaths along the way yeah you know it's like the death of this chapter of your life and you and you have to accept the fact that you don't generally unless you're a dot com billionaire you don't generally retire without acknowledging that the retirement means that you're getting older right you know i'm not retiring at 35 what it means is i'm accepting the fact that my life is changing will change is moving into a different phase. I don't know entirely what my reflections are because I still have a year to live it out and I wanna write about it. I'm gonna write a book about this experience and what it means. It's incumbent upon all of us to try to give these things up bit by bit voluntarily as opposed to having them ripped from our hands. When I announced to the congregation, when I gave the sermon, the first sermon, after I sent out the letter, I said, you know, when my father retired, people were, were howling for him to stay. And I said to him, Dad, why why are you retiring? People are like begging for you to stay. And he said, David, I would rather leave when they beg for me to stay than stay while they're begging for me to leave. For me to leave, right, exactly. That acceptance is incredibly important.
0: Yeah, and it's true. The reality is I've been in my position for 20 years. I love my work. And yet I need to think about right. just this for sure. You've also talked about the effect of social media in our lives. Yes. And it is a reality in our life. It is with us. It's not going anywhere. I really want to know how you think it has affected our ability to grieve and approach transitions in in a different way. I mean, think about Zoom funerals and Zoom shiva. Tell me, what do you think about that? Well, the
1: first thing that came to mind when you said that before you said Zoom sh- funerals in Shiva, which I will get to in just a second, mm-hmm. is that grief has become much more performative. That is, we put on social media, I lost my mother and we want everybody, many people whom we don't know to say, I'm so sorry for you. I'm sorry for your loss. Everything now exists in this vast space online. I understand the comfort it brings, but it's also very strange for someone who grew up in a non-virtual world. Right. The Zoom Shiva, again, has the tremendous advantage bringing in people who otherwise couldn't be there, but it has the tremendous disadvantage of making people feel as though they have adequately shown up for someone without showing up for someone. Right. There just is no substitute for in-person engagement. And not to be there face-to-face is just not the same and never will be the same. We started to broadcast our services and people all over the world said, oh, we love watching your services. We love listening to the sermon. But even now that we're open and we're unmasked, our in-person attendance is a lot lower than it was. I don't know. I'm not sure that that's a good trade-off. It's
0: going to be a challenge for the communities as we look to build community. How do we do that again? Because it was such a vital piece of why we were connected and belonged to synagogues. So I'll just end this by asking you one last question. Do you think our caretakers need more love?
1: I've now seen all sorts of caretaking. I saw my father. My mother had a severe stroke when she was 52. Mm -hmm. She became aphasic. She couldn't speak. And my father lived the last 20 years of his life, maybe more, as a caretaker, 30 years. Wow. And I saw the enormous, enormous toll that it took on him. And he was amazing. And said, and I really believe it's true, I wouldn't have it any other way. But still, oh, it was brutal. This is the part of the job market, so to speak, that Really needs the most support and more people coming into it. And those are people who care for other people because human need is boundless. Yeah. And your ability to give is limited. I see this all the time. Rabbis are one example, but there are so many examples of people who take care of other people and yet other people, even while appreciating it, need more than people can give. Right. Yeah. Caretakers suffer from just a fatigue that they don't even allow themselves to feel as just, because how can you feel bad about the fact that you're taking care of somebody who's sick? Right. But you're a human. Exactly. Beings <laughs> are limited. And so, yes, caretakers are exhausted and and beautiful souls and need other people to tell them how wonderful they are and to give them a break.
0: Right. And I know that our clergy as caretakers, they're in need of that as well. They've been working really hard these past couple of years. The pandemic
1: has been really, really difficult because, first of all, everybody has gone through it. Yeah. And let me just give you an image that was very powerful for me. I was listening to a podcast with Nicholas Christakis, who's a professor at Yale, studies plagues and pandemics. And he says, when the tsunami hits, you just try to stay alive. He said, when the tsunami recedes, you see the damage. Hmm. And now the pandemic tsunami is receding. So I think we're going to see all sorts of damage, not just financial, but emotional, spiritual, that everybody is going through. And we're going to have to take care of each other.
0: Absolutely. And we need to be sensitive to that and mindful of that for sure. Rabbi David Wolfie, thank you so much. And you and your sacred work. Thank you. Needless to say, I I follow you on Facebook and everywhere else. So I'll keep track of you. I'll make sure I know where you are. It's a deal. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary and this is Exit Strategy.